1866. If a truly graphic picture of the scene before us could be made by our pen, it would probably be the most familiar of all the interesting poems in Rome to those of our readers who have visited this old city. A little to the left of the Trinata steps is Hooker's, the bank, the headquarters of Americans and English. Several gentlemen stand in front of the arch entrance, talking over their newspapers, which they have just got out of the mail, and more probably they are discussing the last event in Rome, the establishment of an American club. The club was started on Saturday evening, November 14, and became an ufal complete last night. The rooms are said to be very handsome, and are in Palazzo Gregoria, the edge of which building we can see from our balcony. Thanksgiving evening was celebrated by the members of the American club, and at the handsome supper that was served, there was fresh oysters, which seems to have been relished by the gentlemen more keenly than any of the French dishes. Americans, like the English, carry their national tastes and customs with them to foreign countries. A government messenger in fine uniform dashes up the broad piazza on horseback. An Englishwoman with a superb, huge staghound passes. Some dressy Americans, fresh from Paris, our rich countrywomen are unmistakable, stop in front of Nazaris, and three sightseeing, plainly clad women, armed with Viennese satchels and guidebooks, move briskly along, as if every moment was worth Third Street price on noonday. The studios are filling up rapidly. Artists have returned from their summer trips and established themselves for the seasons. Beside the regular resident artists, some new ones are here for the winter. Miss Hosmer has returned. Miss Cushman is expected at Christmas, and with her will come Miss Stebbins. There is quite an American colony of artists in Rome, men and women, and although on D, that disagreeable gossip, implies that there are thorns of discontent and discord in society, we may have not yet discovered them, and hope we may not. With this beautiful opening from a Roman afternoon, I welcome you to our new episode for Lady Fiction, a podcast located at America Centrum Hamburg. I'm your host, Stephanie Schäfer, and I'm excited to announce that today, for our Women's History Month episode, Lady Fiction goes gossip. And gasping for air and rolling eyes is in order here, I think. We will talk about hearsay and unsolicited talk about knowledge, production, and the archive about the functions of gossip for building celebrity and commodity culture. This seems to me a great topic not only to foster a little escapism in dire times, but also for considering the post-pandemic moment and our re-entrance into a changed social universe. The New York Times' Mandy Brownholz already addressed this as early as May 2021 in an article that was called Feeling Socially Rusty? Try a Little Light Gossiping. And while we know now that in 2021, social distancing was far from over two years later, I, for one, can still connect to feeling socially rusty. So to contextualize this impression of the present moment, we will historicize and go back to the 19th century. And here with me to do that is American study scholar Dr. Katrin Horn, who will bring us the hot take from academics on gossip. Hi, Katrin. Hi. Very nice to be here. It's great to have you. Katrin, I will quickly introduce you to our uh, listeners. Katrin Horn is an assistant professor of Anglophone Literatures and Cultures at the University of Bayreuth in Germany, where her work focuses on 19th century literature, contemporary popular culture, and queer and gender studies. She is the author of Women, Camp, and Popular Culture, Serious Excess, which was published with Paul Grave in 2017. And she has edited volumes on American studies as transnational performance and on voice in popular music. 
Today, Katrin will let us in on her research project on gossip in 19th century life writing, periodicals and literature, which you can explore at her website, archivalgossip.com. And the monograph um, that um, is covering this research project is titled Gossip in 19th Century U.S. American Culture and Literature, and it's under contract with Edinburgh UP. So we have a lot to look forward to from Katrin. Thank you for being here. And I would like to start speaking to you about the opening quote uh, that you read us with this beautiful trip to Rome and its image of Americans in Rome. What, what kind of text was that and where did you find it? What is it all about? Yeah, so that text is written by Anne Hampton Brewster, uh, and it's for Lippincott's magazine. And it's, it's actually a rather long article, so these very, very short excerpts. That's called um, American Artists in Rome. And most of the article actually is just that. She tells you all about the different studios in Rome, and she, she takes her readers with her into the studios, mentions the different artists that have just arrived or has some, haven't established themselves there, um, and basically, you know, what their sculptures are about, um, what their paintings are mm -hmm. about, who's getting the best prices, and so forth and so forth. But there are also bits and pieces, in particular that last part about Miss Hosmer, yes, Miss Christian, yeah. and Miss Stebbins, where we get a glimpse of less, oh, this is American artistry right now, and this is all the national monuments that are built right now in Rome, and more... Oh, by the way, I am living here in Rome. I am so tight with all the expatriates. Let me take you by the hand and give you all the latest gossip that I have. And particularly the one about gossip, Stabbins and Cushman would have worked well for her readers because this is written in 1869. So by this time, Charlotte Cushman, who is an actress, uh, was the biggest name, arguably, of the British and American stage. Um, so everyone would be reading this kind of you know, upper middle class magazine would know who she is. And with Harriet Hosmer and Emma Stebbins, um, she's mentioning two sculptors who are also very well established. Hosmer in particular is probably at the time the most kind of renowned female sculptor in the US, but particularly definitely the most renowned female sculptor from the US who's living in Rome. And so she's mentioning three celebrities and her readers would also know that these three women have at various points in that time lived together. There was an overlapping moment where all three of them lived together and then only two of them, and speculation of why that change might have happened, ran rampant. Um, people would have also known that Brewster was a personal friend of Cushman through other articles that Brewster wrote, but also other articles that were written about Brewster. And so this whole thing is on the one hand stressing how Anne Hampton Brewster is a real art history expert and can give, you know, really expert knowledge to her um, readers who might not have that. But on the other hand, she's also writing as someone who is part of an expatriate community of celebrities uh, mm. in whom many people in the US would be very invested Yeah, and it's it's intriguing. That's why I kind of framed it like a visit to Rome because that's what she does in the opening as well. Um, so it's she she lumps together the gossip part with dropping the celebrity names towards the end with this armchair travel component. When I read this, I'm like, okay, I I, I can't imagine myself, you know, sitting on the Piazza di Spagna, and she she 
she stages it really through a mixture between, oh, you will know about this. You will have been here because we're all in a club of, of rich American travelers to Europe on the one hand. But at the same time, she also includes a few notices of social commentary that make it at the same time entertaining, but also a little bit documentary. And um, that's why I like so much the, the episode where you where she talks about an American club has been founded. It's now a fait accompli. So Americans have a footing in Rome. We're important enough for that. But at the same time, she says they're celebrating Thanksgiving. They're bringing their, their stuff and they're doing the relevant artistic work, which works really well with, the, with placing the celebrities in this as well. So when I read this, I was reminded of Contemporary ladies magazines or not even ladies magazines, but lifestyle magazines where you get the synesthetic function of this is Rome. You know, you can go to this cafe on the corner and uh, there's a wonderful quote there. It, it offers pricey food and drinks that cheer and do inebriate. There's a bit of a, you know, I mean, of course, drinking in Rome makes you happy, but it also makes you drunk. And then you have all the fun you can have. So it's luxurious, but also aware of the transgression. And um, yeah, what do you think about this? Yeah, I, th I think, no, that's, that's I think it's a very accurate description also of why Brewster's writing works so well. Because that's, I mean, as I said, this is one of the longer articles. Um, the columns that she was basically writing to, to make a living are much shorter, um, one column, and she publishes them in basically two different newspapers that pay on a regular basis. And then she has these more um, long, kind of long read articles here in Lippincott's and later in Blackwoods magazine that are a bit more prestige and bring more, you know, for the article itself. But it's not her daily bread. But mm -hmm. even in her daily bread, you usually get this kind of first an eyewitness account of this is what I'm seeing, mm -hmm. right? The Pope's funeral um, or that progression or the carnival in Rome. This is what I'm seeing. This is who you would be meeting here. Um, so a bit of a report, a bit of giving you the feeling of the space. Much of that is, as you say, addressed as if her audience had been there already, mm. which is probably more aspirational than true. Because sure, the grand tour is, you know, is really on vogue in the like second half of the 19th century. But it's still very much a rich people thing. And she, she does know that she's not only writing for those, but also for those who hope to become rich people. Yeah. Social mo yeah. Upward mobility is, is key to all of the things that, that kind of surround the gossip that I'm working with. But at the same time, she, she and a lot of other writers at the time also make it possible for people to, to actually envision what it would be like if, if they get there, right? There are so many travel guides. There's so much travel writing more generally, where it's really, it, you, you have the feeling that you, if you were there, you would know what to do. Yeah. And you would also importantly know who to talk to. So there are a couple, for example, diary entries, um, from people that, you know, are not relevant here, but just regular American folks where they explicitly say, you know, when I arrive in Rome, maybe I should hang out with Charlie Cushman <laughs> and other things. Like where they really, there is the assumption that there is an expatriate community that if I go over there and can just become part of that, um, yeah. you know, just as easily, seemingly as easily as Brewster. It's not that easy because as yeah. I mentioned, Brewster actually knew Cushman back when they were both living in Philadelphia like 20 years ago. Um, but this whole eyewitnessing, like making it seem like you could be there or like you have actually seen it is one part. And then you have this other part, you know, that comes 
here at the end the supposedly disagreeable gossip, gossip yeah yeah where she really sa- says something that only she could tell you this is not anymore about the things that everyone sees in rome um, about the beautiful piazzas or the beautiful studios this is only really that's something i know and then there is this hint of well and now you know it because you know you my reader we're part of the same group and so what i'm calling this in the book <laughs> I love how I was talking about this as if the book was written. What I will be calling this in the book, yeah. right, is a form of public intimacy where these articles, many of these articles about gossip are written as if addressed to someone where author and reader are intimately familiar with each other. And there are a couple of phrases that are, you know, used over and over again. There's this direct address that you, you know, all often have where like, you know, you know this and I know this, not everyone else will know yeah. this. That I think makes up this this specific mixture of the writing that that Marx Brewster and others at the time, that makes it also so commercially valuable. Because I mean, Brewster is someone who gets reprinted all over the place. Yeah. And she's aware that that also kind of drives up her market value. So she wants to be reprinted. And she wants to be also to a certain extent gossiped about. But this whole thing is is so clearly commercial. It's also the way that she writes about in her own diaries. And at the same time, the way that it's written, it tries very much to not sound like mm, it's commercial, mm. but to sound like it's something entirely different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the intriguing paradox about this public intimacy that you talked about, right? Because, I mean, if she does get reprinted in all the other magazines all over the U- US, it's this is not going to be intimate anymore. Because if you define intimacy as something that's between two select people, or maybe more a, a select group of, of, of people who know things, then that's that might be intimate. But the intimate then changes from the number of people to proximity in knowledge and in interest, it seems. So what she, what this also really does is it does constitute a certain kind of readership who is assumed to be internationally interested, artistically versed. And even if they're not, if they don't know about, you know, the hot takes about new American art, she can tell them about it. So she does write um, succinctly about it. And she taps, and this is what I found so intriguing about this, she taps into the American zeitgeist of 1869 in an in a also paradoxical way. On the one hand, this is pure escapism. So this is the restaurant where you can get drunk and you can celebrate. And here's the models and the beggars dozing in the sun. And, you know, you have this armchair travel where you can imagine just to be in Rome where the sun is shining. But then the art she talks about is Healy's painting, The Peacemaker. And this is the year is 1869. So... So it's important that back home in the U.S., the, the, the nation, the just unified, reunified nation is reeling from the Civil War, getting over the trauma of the assassination, trying to do, get reconstruction underway. Progressive era hasn't yet started. It's really a dire time. So you could say all these rich people who go on these European trips are totally lost to anything you know they totally don't know what's going on but then she writes about this painting that um, this artist Healy does the peacemaker and the peacemaker is a painting of um, the peace making between President Lincoln and the southern representatives and, and Lee and Grant and so she has this one phrase where she says 
This is what, what, what these wealthy Americans are doing well. Wealthy Americans are doing a bold and creditable work in this thing of ordering national pictures from American artists. That's the service to the nation that these rich Americans in Rome <laughs> are doing. And that's a really appealing strategy for saying to people, this is why we do the national work. This is why it's important to be reading the gossip, to hear about, you know, what the American artists are doing. And this is why it's also important to be considering Cushman, Brewster herself, and Cushman's roommates in this context. And... Um, so she really manages to bring it all to a point here. Yeah, I think it's also important to further contextualize this and realize that that's also the way that she is written about. There are a couple of articles that are writing about Brewster, also Grace Greenwood as another kind of foreign correspondent who has a similar column at a, at a similar time. And they are written about as doing a service for American artists abroad because they are bringing attention to them because they are kind of leading almost uh, potential buyers into their studios and so the way that they are written about as part of this you know expatriate community is not just as you know they're part of it but really as they are an essential part that is supportive of again this commercial endeavor of actually yes it is patriotic art but it still needs to be sold in order to yeah. achieve anything yeah. um, because if it's just lumbering in some Italian studio it's not going to do anyone anything good and the other thing when you mentioned that there's the seeming disconnect between kind of the politics of you know like the harsh reality of the politics in the mm. US at the time versus the escapism of this I would add to that 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 sure yeah there is there is that but there is also the, the reason that so many Americans are invested in Italy at the time is kind of this comparable political situation. And so both Greenwood and Brewster start out writing mostly about the Risorgimento, mm -hmm. um, the unification mm -hmm. of the Italian nation. Mm -hmm. And so it is precisely also this moment of political upheaval yeah. in Italy that makes it so intriguing for Americans who kind of have lost their way or, you know, fighting for independence, um, or not independence, but fighting for... A, a, Union, a for preserving... A, yeah, yeah for, and for making it better. Unification. yeah. Exactly. And so you also have this oftentimes with Brewster, which you would really write about the hard politics of today, you know, who's leading whom now where, what the Pope has said and where all of this is going in a context in which she also says something about her last, you know, salon or, you know, where she had dinner with whomever. Yeah. So it's it's not really that separate in her columns. And that also, right, if we think about gossip as the thing that that refuses to acknowledge any boundary between the public and the private. That is fascinating to me how also in these articles, there's really the refusal to see a, a, a really a boundary between the politics and the domestic, and again, between the public and private. So it's, it's very much mixed here. And the way that Brewster and Greenwood are at different times seen really as experts on art, but also on politics at the same time as they are really, you know, celebrated as God's columnists is, is also, I think, kind of a fascinating insight into how periodicals at the time work yeah. and how they think of what they need to tell the U.S. about spaces abroad. Yeah. And that's I'm going to um, pinpoint you on, on that thing you said. Gossip refuses to uh, gossip refuses the separation between public and private. Can you walk us a little bit through your findings on, on how gossip at this time works. And uh, my follow-up question on this is, um, 
is gossip gendered or not? And it's <laughs> and how? <laughs> so maybe, but maybe let's talk. So what did you find out about gossip? And then is this a woman's thing or maybe not a woman's thing or, or how can we clear it also? Oh, that, those are a lot of questions. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> Take it one no, at a time. I, I th yeah, I will start with the gender thing, um, even though it was your second question. Right. So if we look at the history of, of gossip scholarship, most people like, come from sociology, anthropology, philosophy, and there is really kind of a sustained scholarship on gossip, at least starting in the 70s and then, you know, going through 80s, 90s up until today. And already in, I think it is 77, but it's definitely late, late 70s, there's an article that's called How the Gossip Became a Woman. Mm. It's precisely about the question, like, is gossip gendered? Has it always been gendered? And it's also something that's taken up by Patricia Maya Specks, who I think is probably the entryway for most people from literary studies who enter kind of into the topic of gossip because she was the first literary scholar to write a full book about gossip and its connection to literature and life writing. And she also, you know, gives us this trajectory of how originally, if you look at the term, it's really just someone, you know, who's there during childbirth and then it's someone who's there during the family gatherings. And it's just someone, you know, that's, it's very neutral, more positive. And it's also for quite a while, not specifically gendered. And it's, if you look at the 19th century, then this is when it becomes so heavily mm. gendered. And I think a very interesting argument is made by Karen Atkins, who's a philosopher who writes about gossip, um, where she sees kind of once written evidence, uh, I would call it, once that takes off uh, and kind of oral communication, oral knowledge overall is devaluated, that's also when kind of gossip reputation goes down the drain okay. and where it becomes so, so heavily connected to the domestic sphere, to mm. the private sphere, to women, to malice, to the trivial, like everything bad that we think about gossip really kind of takes off yeah. in the 19th century yeah. once it is so clearly contrasted with the mm. written. And that's, that's interesting for me because my entryway into gossip is Warren and Brandeis, The Right to mm -hmm. Privacy, which they published in the 1890s. So it's this legal treatise on should the US finally codify a right to privacy? And their reason for writing this, or one of the reasons for writing this, is that they feel like the press is publishing too much yeah. gossip. And now gossip is not an oral yeah. thing anymore, but now gossip yeah. is a written thing. And that seemingly is a problem because now, gasp, it is a problem mm -hmm. for men. I mean, they explicitly phrase it like this. It used to be this, but now it is, you know, it's coming from wow. all sides and it's, it's, their examples highlight now gossip is a problem of men. So maybe now we really need to you address need to it. to codify it um, and prohibit it. Exactly. I mean, spoiler alert, the US never really codified a right to privacy. It's not, no, no, not in the Bill of Rights or anything, but it is, it's starting off this kind of legal discussion that's actually kind of widespread in the 1890s. There's also a lengthy article in Scribner's by Gottkin that raises basically the same question, like, should we be worried about this gossip thing that's now happening mm. in all the newspapers? Mm. And so that's, that's how I came to the topic, actually, originally, from this end point, quote, of quote, of, oh, no, it's not oral anymore, whatever shall we do? So I was thinking, as you were speaking, the 19th century is when this gendering starts. And I um, did quite a bit of reading on 18th century English um, magazines. And I was wondering about the notion of the medium um, in this context. The Tatler and the Spectator are 19th century society, British society magazines that are 
they call they don't call it gossip, but what all they do is write about who went to the theater, what they wore, and what they looked like. And this is always observed by fictional personae, uh, who are themselves caricatures. So this is there's a, a coincidence between the author as as social observer and caricature. Uh, in the 19th English 19th century culture that pertains also to the dandies and, you know, to fashionable society. While at the same time, there's really no, not so much concern about gender uh, in the Tatler or the Spectator. The men are the biggest gossips, <laughs> avant la lettre, maybe a little bit, in this context. So it's interesting that the magazine in the 19th century has this, I think, this and correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert here, but the magazine is, is one of the predominant forms of uh, print culture and mass dissemination in the 19th century. And it also becomes gendered. And that's when the gossip becomes also marketed to the ladies with the implication that as when it's written and when it can harm people, then it's not oral anymore. And eventually it becomes this thing that can harm men. So that's regarding the gendering of this. I mean, I wouldn't say that like Brenda, Warren and Brenda are themselves experts on the periodical because I would agree with you. Like, particularly if you look to the British side, um, gossip has always been there. And also, um, the other thing is that I would say that for British periodicals and literature, and interestingly, the same goes for French, there has been much more research done mm. on, on that and gossip, um, versus the American side where there's lots and lots of work on periodicals. And not so much work done on the gossip in periodicals, yeah. which is an entirely different. I mean, I'm grateful for it because then I get to write. Yeah, my you book. get to write. But the it book. is. <laughs> but there's there's a clear kind of distinction between what has been written about British context versus what has been written about American context. So um, when when Warren Brandeis say that the press is overstepping in every direction, the obvious bounds of propriety and of decency, gossip is no longer the resource of the idle and of the wicked, but has become a trade. I'm not saying that they're right with their timeline, mm. because they're writing this mm. in the 1890s. Mm. And I would say, like, they're a bit late with this. Yeah. Because by the time that they're writing this, the US already has a full-blown magazine that basically does nothing but gossip. And that's town topics. I mean... They do other things, but no one is reading town topics for anything but their, col uh, their column is called yeah. um, Saunterings. Okay. Officially, they also have something on the theater and literature reviews, and there's also a whole thing about Wall Street, but it's negligible. Um, so I, I really think they're late with this. But on the other hand, if we look at the 1890s as an end point, then they do have, well, there's something there. Because... Some of the um, the people that I'm looking at are, as I say, writing in the 50s and 60s. And most of what I'm finding there is gossip really presented as foreign correspondence. I'm telling you something about a foreign place, which is on the one hand exotic, but also well known because a lot of Americans are here. And, you know, we talked about this whole interest in Italy and interest in expatriates and so forth. And as we move along over the, the decades, um, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, 90s, is when there's a little bit, I would say, less of an excuse hmm. for gossip and a more kind of overt embrace of it. At the same time, nonetheless, as most of the gossip that I'm looking at is nonetheless published in contexts where there's also lots and lots of material that reminds you that gossip is bad. Yeah. So, for example, Harper's, Harper's Weekly, but also Harper's Bazaar, so the kind of the male version of Harper's and the female version mm -hmm. of Harper's, big quotation marks there, but how they are marketed... Harper's Weekly already has a column that's called Foreign Gossip. And then they have something that's, you know, that really 
various versions of something with gossip in the title. And that goes on the entire time. At the same time, they're also regularly publishing poems that I would describe as anti-gossip poems, where the whole thing is one poetic diatribe against why gossip is bad, but also why gossip is female. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and it's it's a beautiful uh, genre. I would say the anti-gossip um, poem that I would all recommend. One is called, for example, They Say, which coins a phrase that kind of something calls like women's tongue of fire. And it's all about how women are running around in a city and how they say is the worst phrase basically in the English language because they're only spreading lies with their tongues of fire. It's very exciting stuff. And then, you know, you turn the page and there's foreign gossip. You're like... Okay, interesting editorial choice here. Uh, the same goes for Harper's Bazaar, which is then their official publication for women. Here too, you have, on the one hand, lots of, I would say, kind of lifestyle advice on how to be a proper housewife, you know, very traditional stuff, but also how to sit by the bedside of the sick um, and all the things you should be avoiding. And among the things you should be avoiding is, again, you should be avoiding gossip. But then you turn a couple of pages and there you find some kind of home portrait home portrait of um, a sculptor or a painter or, you know, an author and so forth that gives you all the minute details of their private life. And this. You know, this this goes beyond almost like any kind of genre convention of a specific periodical. Mm-hmm. And my favorite example would be the Ladies' Home Journal, um, which has kind of a literary section that is clearly marked for people who are avid readers, very invested in the literary market of the time. You get all the information about bestsellers. Weirdly enough, you get a lot of information about what authors are making in terms of money and who is making the most and who might be making more than you think they are making. In August of 1889, there is Books and Bookmarkers, which is written by Mrs. Ramsey, and that's an ongoing column that you have throughout the year, which specifically complains about how critics are paying too much attention to female authors' private lives, and they don't write anything really about their book. They only care about how exciting their lives are, or actually rather scandalous, the critics come for, comes forward and caters for this craze for notoriety and chronicles each movement, each detail of the private lives mm-hmm. and pours into public ear an appalling amount of scandal and gossip and how that is all wrong and bad and, you know, we shouldn't do that. And then on the same page, the actual editor of the Ladies' Home Journal by the time, um, Edward W. Bock, he has a, um, a column that's called Literary Leaves. And the subtitle, yes! The subtitle yes. of that is Bright Gossip About Those Who Write and Make Books. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes it's very, someone has written a book, um, someone has a new agent, but sometimes it's also Mrs. Stowe's crucifix. And that... I want to this read is, this. Can we read it? Yeah. It's, it's my lovely piece. So, okay. Would you, would you, would, would you, would you read us uh, Mrs. Mrs. Stowe's, this is Harriet Beecher Stowe, everyone, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, the long canonized mainstay of American culture. Yes. So this is Harriet Beecher Stowe. You will now Calvinist learn something about Harriet Beecher Stowe you never knew, even though you took 10 years of American studies. You never knew before. It is well known to the intimate friends of Harriet Beecher Stowe that she has ever had deep down in her heart a sympathy with the best elements of Catholicism. This fact is not familiar to the public, but I happen to know that some of Mrs. Stowe's most cherished friends have been among the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. She has an especial fondness for the crucifix, and in her bedchamber, exclamation mark, 
Not in the text. That's my exclamation mark. And in her bedchamber hangs one which has been her constant companion for years. To a friend who asked her why she had it, she once remarked, There is in my heart a need for some outward tangible symbol. I believe that in this world we must live by symbols. And this one is very essential to me. End of quote. And I mean... <gasps> you go gasping. Nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice quote. But oh my God. So we are in her bedchamber. We learn about her religion. And we have three different references to her intimate friends or things she only told her friends. Yes. But now you, dear segment of the public who is smart enough to read this column in the Ladies Home Journal, you know it too. Mm -hmm. And it's on the same page as we should care less about people's private lives. Yes. Which I love. And it also... I mean, it's a really... Salacious comment on her work because, um, you know, the Calvinist logic of her abolitionism is at the heart of Uncle Tom's Cabin of that bestseller. And so it's literally flipping the pages on her public image. And even if you say, okay, this is, um, you know, hearsay, it's not proper to be inquiring and authors can hang in their bedchambers, whatever they want. At the same time, you know, it's really poking fun at the literary industry. There's a, a transgressive or a subversive commentary in that about stardom and, and author stardom in the 19th century that I really enjoyed, you know? Uh, so the literary leaves also includes a section on um, how uh, Sarah Orne Jewett writes, um, yeah. how they do it, and how, how the authors... Another author is, is described according to her look. So it's it's really a deliberate fusing of that. You don't you readers, you don't only want to read the great books, you also want to know about these people's lives and about their meanings. So it's um it's really winking and it forges that link between the reader and um the public intimacy that you talked about that, you know, gossip creates. Right, because it's once again stressing or at least evoking a form of insider knowledge. There obviously is like, it's not real. Everyone can read literary, uh, Ladies Home Journal and literary leaves. But, you know, when they stress that the public doesn't know this, but now you know it, that's mm. precisely this kind of, I'm sharing a secret with you, or at least I'm sharing um, insider information with you in a way that, you know, no other journal can do. So please continue reading us as I think also kind of the the subtext of that. And I think, you know, you, you originally had a question about the boundaries of, of public and uh, the, of public and private that is kind of messed up by gossip. Um, so maybe we, I can take this yes. as an opportunity to go back to that. So, right, if you look at the history of what has been written about gossip, I, I would say the kind of big breakthrough, at least for me when I was reading up of this, is how many of the anthropologists and philosophers who write about gossip stress how it's less about what you share. It's not so much about, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and, rock and roll, even though it's in there as well. But uh, I think Lewis White had this beautiful phrase where she says, it's more about creation, creating bonds and boundaries. So mm -hmm. it's specifically gossips, all, the whole point of gossip is to find your way in a community. And Gluckman, who's this, you know, the, the kind of the big original anthropologist who wrote about um, gossip, he also made the point that for him, There is no community without gossip. And basically, gossip becomes the way in which you can tell whether someone is inside or outside of a community. So because it's this is the marker of whether you know what the values of the group are, who who else is inside the group, who you can make 
safely quote-unquote make fun of also because they're kind of outside of the group and so this whole thing about how gossip's essential feature is not so much what the information is that you get but really what is transported as you get the information and i think this is beautifully done also in this in these um, gossip columns in which they you know they create this whole very public group of people however who are intimately addressed as part of an insider group that supposedly knows something that other people don't know that can make connections that other people cannot make and i think much of this is also connected to the seriality of the format um, whether we look at Bock or whether we look at Greenwood, Brewster, all of these gossip columnists, they can remind readers, you know, we talked about this mm-hmm. last week, or I will come back to this next week, um, or as I've written in another context. So there is this whole thing about we a continuing conversation. And in some contexts, there's also kind of the added value of people can actually write it and can send letters to the editor. Though, honestly, with the gossip columnists, that isn't kind of that high up on the ladder. But there is nonetheless a suggestion of a dialogue. Really distressing. I told you this before. Uh, you know, and you know this. So there's this back and forth, at least symbolically, that really comes back to this whole idea of gossip as a form of kind of community building. And here too, I think, right, we see this connection to breaching the boundary between the public and the private. So on the one mm-hmm. hand, gossip is always about kind of sharing something that's not supposed to be shared, talking about something that's too private to really be acknowledged in public, even if that public is just two people, you know, bitching in the hallway. And but at the same time, also in these in these gossip columns, you also have this kind of disregard for the public private bound, because we are creating a private quote-unquote community in the public context of mass media. And so kind of on this double level of both the content of what we talk about, but also how gossip travels, this boundary breaching is essential. Mm. And I think this is why it's precisely so much on the rise in periodicals of the time, because right, this is the time when periodicals try to find bigger audiences, new audiences, um, increasingly also niche audiences, and you know having then this form of communication that that really allows you to kind of highlight one segment of readers that is more in the know than others is basically perfect yeah and i mean what i also find interesting is how it makes and breaks celebrities even in the 19th century um in the article i quoted in the opening uh from the new york times that argued for gossiping is called feeling socially rusty try a little light gossiping one point was that gossip was um celebrity gossip was kind of started in the 19th century which is obviously not true (laughs) because it started before but what I find so intriguing is when, when we talk about your key topic, uh, Charlotte Cushman, the most important and renowned American actress. And uh, you have two sources that describe her life in a letter from Rome uh, that have different headings. So the description is the same. It reads, a letter from Rome says, Miss Cushman and five other ladies, including Grace Greenwood, Miss Hosmer, the young sculptress, a funny little fellow, bright, wide awake, and short as Pycrust, Miss Vaughan, Miss Hayes, and etc., are living together like the happy family in the Corso. Wicked wits call them the strong-minded party. They have receptions every Wednesday evening. So that's a, an observation of the happy family of five ladies living together in Rome. But it was published twice, in 1853, in February and in uh, March, with different headings. 
the first heading was a nice party that was published in the Daily Evening Star, Washington, D.C., February 25, 25th. And the second heading for this in the Portsmouth Inquirer in, in Ohio was a dangerous party. So that's a nice example for the gatekeeping that, you know, these or this the, the, the defining of the moral universe that these magazines try to do. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the other thing about gossip, right, is that it's it's also always about at least a hint of evaluation, a hint of judgment. Um, and that's that's also what you find here, because as you said, the description is entirely the same. The whole mm. evaluation, the old judgment comes from the headline, a nice party versus a dangerous party. And anyway, I can't speculate about who precisely the readers of this are, but um, it's very easy to see where you kind of, where the fault line is between a nice party and a dangerous party. It's how much these authors take into consideration what else is known about Cushman. And there are basically two versions. One version is she's an incredibly successful actress who's very devoted to her family, who only took to the stage in the first place, as many kind of biographical sketches at the time do not tire to, say, to stress. Um, she only went to the stage and took on male roles so that her sister, who was destitute at the time, mm -hmm. could have a chance at playing Julia to her Romeo. And so that, mm. this is all about devotion to family. And she's now supporting the the son that her sister had in an incredibly unhappy marriage and she's taking care of her mother melodrama melodrama there's yeah. all that she's also an incredibly patriot there's a lot of melodrama and i mean this is 53 but also if you kind of fast forward to the civil war um you have this added layer of cushman is not only a wonderful you know sister and daughter but she's also an basically a class patriot because she's supporting the union and she's supporting a sanitary commission and she's doing all of this um what oh allow i'm missing words charity work yeah. is, she do, is she also doing right. charity work uh, yeah yeah so she's doing yeah. all of this charity she's doing all of this charity work throughout the civil war and that really kind of pushed her star recognition entirely over the mm. edge so this is just one thing right family woman dedicated artist Uh, charity work, great patriot, all wonderful. And then there's the other version where probably the headline, The Dangerous Party, comes in, where there's also lots and lots of writing about, well, okay, maybe she only played Romeo, so her sister had a shot at the stage because she really needed money. But also, we do know that she runs around in her free time also in male attire. So maybe... <gasps> people want to write about that as well, right? <gasps> and so, I know, gasp. <laughs> so two years earlier, for example, the Illustrated American News has an article, it's relatively short, but like it starts with Miss Cushman in male attire. Mm -hmm. And um, here we get the, the Cleveland plain dealer learns that Miss Charlotte Cushman, who was spending a quiet vacation at the Saint Astonished Guest of the Saint Marie Hotel, one fine morning by appearing equipped Kapapi in masculine attire, hat, coat, unmentionables, and all. Like, how do they know her? Anyway, um, <laughs> those. Those who have seen her personation of Hamlet can easily understand the grace and ease with which she wore the new toggery. Hers was not a single moment of triumph, not a mere desire to astonish the dinner table and then, like a ghost of Banco, to vanish away and go back to petticoats and whalebone. No! She rode in, fished, walked, ran, and romped in it, and for aught we learn, says the plain dealer, has determined to wear it for the remainder of her days, or at least of maidenhood. 
So mm-hmm. right, the readers at the time, maidenhood, uh, and last yes. spoiler alert, she never married, at least not a man. Uh, from her letters, we know that she considered herself to be married twice to women, but obviously that wasn't in the papers. Mm-hmm. But what was in the papers is exactly pieces like this, right, where people do talk about how she dressed um, in male attire. There's also once she is in Rome, which um, based, I mean, following some of her biographers and also my own research, I think it's safe to say was partially inspired by the fact that she wanted to have a household entirely made up of women. And that seemed easier in Rome, a bit removed from the American press. But nonetheless, we still get reports of how she's riding through the Campania uh, on horseback and how she's very muscular and how her and Hosma are, you know, better at fox hunt than most of the men who run around. So this is also public knowledge. But the question is then, do I still consider a nice party or a dangerous mm-hmm. party? And that mm-hmm. is entirely obviously in the eye of the beholder, as you might want to say. And so mm-hmm. throughout her public life, you really have this diverging reports on her where most of it really, I mean, she is a giant star. Most of it is utterly positive. She's amazingly talented. No one does Hamlet and Romeo, but also um, lots of female roles better than her. She's the most dedicated of artists. She does all the charity work, model American. But then up until her death, really, in 8078, you also get these hints of, well, but let's not forget all of these male roles, all of the writing around, all the never marrying, all this being surrounded by women. Let's not forget about that. And no one really outright names her as queer or anything, because clearly also that, you know, it's not the time for that. But there is continued talk about it. And there's also some people who really try to take advantage of that. Um, so there's this one woman who used to be a rival of her on the stage, who then kind of later in, in their separate lives makes up weird stories about how supposedly they once shared a love interest and then, you know... Cushman was thwarted by him because he chose her. And that's why she then swore off men and something, something. It is bonkers. It is not backed up by anything mm. anyone has ever found out about Cushman. But clearly the fact that she never mar- that she did never marry gave rise to all of this speculation. Mm. And so, you know, mm. some of the speculation was a bit more f- fantasyful, I would say, um, than others. But it was also something, importantly, that Cushman herself was very aware of. So, And that's one of my questions. So um, Cushman was aware of the talk and aware of the fact that, you know, her style of living, her love for women might ruin her fame uh, in her career. And she tried to control this. And apparently she controlled it to such a degree or people maybe didn't care so much because they liked the star a little more that they kind of sidelined this. Apparently she was never ruined by this getting out. And I think that's an, that's an intriguing example for um, the fact that gossip doesn't have to be harmful, that it, you know, boys people up and, you know, can even transgress things that are deemed morally unfit or unfitting at a, at a certain time. So two things on that. Um, there's a wonderful biography of Cushman that's written by Lisa Merrill. It's called When Romeo Was a Woman, Charlie Cushman and Her Circle of Female Spectators, which is is very clear um, about her assuming, or about her, it's not by way assuming, it's very clear about the role that uh, Cushman's sexuality played, both in her kind of artistic choices, but also for the way that women related to her. Um, and she has um, what I would call maybe a coda to the book, 
where she addresses specifically this question that seemingly uh, the transgressiveness of her gender representation and of her sexuality wasn't that big of a deal throughout her lifetime, which was 1818 to 1878. But it became a big problem afterwards. And so Merrill mm-hmm. argues that one of the reasons why Cushman is not among the household names, like Forrester, for example, that we still have today of 19th century theater, is precisely that once, quote-unquote, we had the birth of sexuality um, at the end of the 19th century and, you know, the homosexual, quote-unquote, as um, as a type became known in gender transgression and the idea of inwards and something kind of entered the public mind, it became kind of retrospectively suspect that Cushman was this person who, you know, loved male roles, lived only with women, didn't appear to be too feminine um, in her daily life and so forth. And so Meryl argues that at least for the way that she was or rather was not remembered after her death at the close of the 19th century, Cushman's sexuality was absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. But as I said, she also very much writes about how women related to Cushman during her lifetime. And so I think one of the reasons why, or two reasons for why the gossip um, that was possible to be to be spread about Cushman was not that kind of detrimental during her lifetime was that a you know you have this whole thing where people would have to have a clear understanding of um, female queerness and would have to yeah. believe quote unquote that women were capable of such a thing rather than believing in some sort of Boston marriage or whatever, even though I have my own problems with that term. But Mm. I think one of the parts of the problem is really how willing were people to envision their biggest star being that much of a deviant. And on the other hand, Cushman really had the advantages, was incredibly well connected. And she was friends with so many editors and authors so that she was, she could be sure that many of the people writing about her were her friends, basically. Yeah. So right there is, for example, by Grace Greenwood, who also was someone who traveled with Cushman to Rome and then wrote reviews of her work back in the US. She has a lengthy um, summary of how she kind of perceives of Cushman on stage in different roles, both male roles and female roles. And where she also, she very expressly talked about the almost ecstatic feeling that she gets from watching Cushman uh, on stage. And a lot of that is, even though Grace Wood, Greenwood herself was married, but a lot of that sounds incredibly erotic. Yeah, But it was written in a very positive way, as if yeah. right, that's how all female readers can, or watchers, can relate to Cushman. It's totally fine to feel arousal and have erotic ideas about Cushman. That's what we all do, girls. So I think mm-hmm. this is also one of the ways. And it's also Brewster herself. She also, at the, at the year of uh, Cushman's death, she also wrote for Blackwoods magazine a kind of lengthy recollection of her relation with Cushman that starts by stressing how intimate they were when they were young. Obviously, she doesn't say anything sexual, but she nonetheless mentions it as one of the most intimate relationships she ever had. And then she goes on to, you know, stress how great of a person Cushman is. But I think, you know, partially by being being so open about how important this all were, they were also giving other people a chance to think, yeah, well, maybe, yeah, we all relate to Cushman that way. Maybe that's totally fine. Um, At the same time, what I think is important is to stress again that Cushman was aware and she was anxious to keep at least some things out of the press. Um, As I said, she did move to Rome. So while people knew whom she was sharing her house with, obviously it was a lot harder to say anything about her daily life, except for those people that she invited. 
like Brewster mm. and Greenwood, to mm. actually share her daily life with. But we have article uh, letters from her that she was sending to a lover of hers, um, but it was an adulterous affair, so you can guess that whether the problem is that she was a younger woman or whether the problem was that she was cheating on whom she considered her wife, um, where she does stress that any letter that is lost, uh, she kept really scrupulous records of what she sent and what she received and what she was supposed to receive. Any letter that was lost caused utter panic. And she always mm. insisted, if, if this letter didn't reach me, you go to the dead letter's office and you get that letter. Because if that letter doesn't reach me or if that letter falls to the hands of unscrupulous person, she specifically says, my reputation might be lost forever. Yeah. And clearly, as, an, as a celebrity, she knows that her reputation is all she has. And I think this is... You know, it's an intriguing balancing act that that predates much of what we think might have only become clear during the Hollywood era, is that on the one hand, there are things that Cushman needs out of the papers. Lots of the scandals surrounding her sister, definitely her affairs with younger women, but also some of the way that some of her relationships ended and the clearly sexual nature of her relationships. So that all needs to be out of the papers. At the same time, if she wants her charity work during the Civil War, to actually get some money, she needs people to be excited about her. And so you see that clearly during the Civil War, but you also see it earlier when she's first touring England to really make her name for herself, that um, Eliza Cook, whom she most likely was also having a relationship with at the time, would publish poems of adoration about Cushman the week before Cushman would tour that particular city. Right? Okay. So because she knows that she needs to be in the papers, she is, Mm. she needs the publicity and so it is clear that from time to time she will share what needs to be shared there are also some early versions of interviews where the author stresses how they sat down and how Cushman is nothing like you know a dramatic actress you would expect but really is this homely person who will offer you tea like all the things that you still have today when people sit down with celebrities like they're just like us yes she's super rich and she's the most talented person ever and no one does Romeo in any way that's hotter than what she's doing and also she's having an affair with people free women at the same time right now Mm -hmm. but she's just like us she's just like us just like us Yeah. yeah so that's if we want to think of kind of modern celebrity, lots of what I have thought to be um, kind of an early 20th century invention is very much at the heart of her celebrity already in the mid yeah. 1850s to 1870s. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this wonderful conversation about gossip and about how it was always there and um, how the invention of um, a separation between the private and the public really doesn't make so much sense when it comes to how we relate to the world socially and intellectually, textually and um, orally at the same time. Thank you for a great episode. I hope our listeners enjoyed this and keep up the gossip. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. And yes, um, indulge in gossip. It's not as bad as its reputation. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. 
Thanks again for listening.